But the biggest takeaway for me was after I got home from the big break, I played my best golf again up until that point, like right after that, because nothing I played in afterwards, regardless of this, the circumstances or how big the tournament was, felt nearly as pressure packed as the big break. Today we are joined by Charlie Harrison. Charlie is a former professional golfer who played at Wake Forest and graduated from there in 2013. Charlie came to game late, but through practice and persistence secured a spot at Wake Forest where he had eight top 20s and five top 10s. After finishing college, Charlie went on to play on both the PGA Tour Latin America and the PGA Tour Canada. You might also recognize him from the big break Myrtle Beach, which was in 2014 where he was a contestant. You played at Wake Forest. Uh, you went on to play professional golf, played on Latin America, played some on Corn Ferry, played some on Canadian. Walk us through the beginning and what junior golf was like for you. Um, first off, I'm I'm thrilled to be chatting with you guys. I don't get to talk about golf much anymore. So anytime uh, I get to kind of go back in time and relive my, my competitive days, it's super fun for me to do that. I... I started playing when I was a young kid. My dad was a pretty good player, never a never a competitive player, but like a good player at the club and, you know, played to like a three or a four, would play on Saturday mornings with his friends. And so I started out playing really just because I wanted to spend time with him. I noticed that he would, you know, he'd zip out on a Saturday or Sunday to go play and I'd, I'd want to hang with him. I really got into the game when when I was in seventh grade, my family moved to Las Vegas, Nevada from Atlanta. We lived very close to um, a couple of the TPC courses there. I could ride my bike from from middle school, you know, down Wallapai Way to uh, both TPC Las Vegas and TPC Summerlin, which was super fun. I played a lot of golf at a place called Angel Park, another public course called Badlands. Um, and I think that's really where I was bitten by the bug. I love the fact that I kind of didn't need a team to go out there and beat balls for hours and hours. I uh, Moving to Las Vegas from Atlanta is not like moving from Atlanta to Birmingham or, or Atlanta to Charlotte. Like it is quite literally going to a whole new country. Um, and seventh grade is kind of an awkward year to move as well. You know, all these kids have already had a year to get to know each other. So I wasn't a recluse by any stretch, but um, it was just really comfortable to to have the golf course as kind of my, um, maybe my, my respite and refuge. And I could just, after a day of school, zip zip down the road to, to go hit a few balls. So that's how I got into it. Moved back to Atlanta when I was a junior in high school. Um, and and I, I was a good junior player. I won state high school tournament for, I think, our two or three A division when I was uh, a sophomore in, in high school in Nevada. Um, but never a Never an AJGA All-American, never contended, and heck, I never even qualified for a U.S. Junior Amateur. Um, so the fact that I got to go to Wake was maybe due to a few things. Persistence in emailing the coaches, who I'm certain were like, holy cow, like, please lose our email address, kid. Good play at the right time. I qualified for the Southern Amateur as a junior in high school. And and Coach Haas, uh, who was who is still the coach at Wake, happened to be there at that at that time. Um, and a little bit of luck, a kid who who was an unbelievable junior golfer named Brinson Paolini 
committed to play at Wake when he was like in eighth grade or a freshman or something like that. I mean, he was the can't miss kid. Um, he decommitted from Wake at the 11th hour and ended up going to Duke and it opened up a spot on the Wake team for me. So I, I would say with confidence that I was probably not a good enough junior golfer to go to Wake Forest, but because I kind of had this lucky cocktail of a few things all happen in a span of like six months, it opened up a spot for me to go and play for the Deeks. Very cool. So you get there, uh, you kind of have this background, as you said, where you weren't necessarily one of the top, top level amateurs coming in. What did you think was going to happen during qualifying? What did you think your trajectory was going to be? I, I really didn't know. I I knew that I was certainly low man on the totem pole. I, I remember our first ever qualifying round, Wake Forest plays at a course called Old Town, uh, which is a great Perry Maxwell design course in Winston-Salem. And the, the first hole, while challenging, does not have a super challenging tee shot. There's a little ravine at the bottom of a fairway that's, you know, 260 out. And so it's like a hybrid or a three iron off the tee, you know, and you lay up to like an eight iron or, you know, today maybe it's a pitching wedge with as far as the college kids hits it. But for, for me, it was like an eight iron, but like not a hard tee shot at all. Um, and I was so nervous that first. I still remember the feeling. I mean, I pulled out, I had a, an old two iron at the time. And I, I bet I hit six inches behind the ball for my first ever shot in qualifying. Like I was, I was just so nervous because I wanted to play well and prove that, you know, hey, this this kid that wasn't necessarily a walk on, but like wasn't exactly a highly recruited prospect either, you know, really deserved to play. Um, so I don't think I had any expectations. I just I just wanted to put my head down and work hard and see how good I can be. And I knew that I was probably going to get kicked in the teeth in qualifying and in just fun money games with other guys on the team early on. But my hope was that I would learn from those experiences. And and uh, it's kind of like fight or flight, I guess. You know, you should figure out how to how to get better. You you watch so-and-so's putting. You pick up on so-and-so's chipping. You, you know, little things like that I was hoping would almost like through osmosis work its way into my game. I was actually recently in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I knew that Wake had one of like the premier college golf facilities in the country. And I was with my dad and I said, you know, we got to go check this place out. And we went and we, we saw that on-campus practice facility. And I was honestly blown away, um, even though I had high expectations for what that place was. Tell us a little bit about how good um, you know, you guys were treated there with everything like that and how you guys utilize that space throughout the year. Great question. Um, I, I'm biased, obviously, as a former Demon Deacon golfer. I, I do think that like maybe Stanford, Stanford's facility, you could argue is a hair better, not because the facility is better, but because their weather's better. But as far as like a, a gets all four seasons of the year location, I can't think of a better a better golf facility than, um, you know, the Palmer had a complex that we've got it at Wake. So when I showed up as a freshman, the it looked very different. It was still very nice, but it was about a quarter of the size and the complexity that it is today. Um, it had an old baseball stadium kind of at the end of it. And uh, my understanding is that during my freshman year, which would have been fall 2009, spring 2010, the Winston-Salem Dash, which is the minor league baseball team, they they built a new stadium and either gave or sold their old stadium to Wake Forest. 
And so Wake Forest baseball no longer played on campus and didn't need that facility that was, you know, right up next to the golf center. Um, and and I don't know how the golf team was lucky enough to get the land. I'm sure there were other sports teams or other uses that it could have gone to, but we had the ability to probably by three or four X expand the golf center and and uh, completely renovate the indoor facilities. And you've seen it with your own eyes. So you, you're, you're right. It is, it's magnificent now. And it was a huge part of, of my development as a golfer. I think our team's development um, as individuals and as a team, and they're just, there wasn't a scenario you could find yourself in on the golf course that you couldn't cre- recreate or create at, at our golf complex, whether it was a funky side hill lie or it's pouring down rain and you want to go work on distance wedges, like you you could go in the bays, roll up a door, and um, you know that we had <laughs> we had access to incredible technology because of the generosity of of past players and and donors that even weren't on golf teams past. So like you could have a track band combine set up where you put the high number at 130 and the low number at 50 and it randomly generates you know 20 to 40 wedge shots and you have to you know try and hit that number um so it was fantastic it was i i can't imagine i've said this often even if i wasn't a golfer i still think i would have gone to wake forest for undergrad because i just love the school so much it was icing on the cake that that I got to be a, a student athlete there and play for Jerry Haas, have a Wake Forest golf bag and, and have a facility like that. It was real. I was really lucky. Very cool. Uh, jumping back a little bit, uh, you talked about how you were out in Las Vegas, caught the golf bug, were moving at an awkward time. So it gave you a little time to, you were social, but also internalize and focus on uh, an endeavor like golf. What was your development like you didn't play uh that much beforehand it sounded like i think your family is very athletic your dad played football grandfather played basketball i think so you have as far as genetics go an athletic background and you said yourself i mean you played basketball what was it like picking up golf like that and then getting that skill acquisition because you shrug it off a little bit saying like oh i'm i lucky i played at wake and i mean it's Maybe there's there's obviously some truth in that there's luck everywhere in this world, but in your regard, it still takes a lot of skill just to go from not playing much golf to being a high level player like that, no matter what. Yeah, I think it's relative, right? Like I remember being a sophomore in high school. We were playing the I can't I went to a school called Faith Lutheran junior senior high school. And I can't remember we were not big, but but we were like we weren't big from it was a private school we were not as big as any of the public schools but for a private school at the time we were pretty big so i can't remember if we were if we were 2a or 3a but i remember i shot 73 the first day of our two or 3a state championship and then the second round i shot five under i shot 67 to win and so like i i was a good player and i had some good rounds but compared to my college roommate evan beck who before his senior year, so he he finished runner up at the U.S. Junior Amateur summer after our junior year, and then that fall, fall of our senior year of high school, he won the junior players at Sawgrass. Like just he made some sick putt, I think, on eighteen to win, or maybe he's in a playoff. But so like I was good, but I was not that kind of good. And generally, it was that kind of good that got to go play golf at Wake Forest. 
but yeah, I started late. I mean, I like I remember <laughs> I remember Evan and I. He's an only child. We're still best friends to this day. Um, he was a groomsman at my wedding, and and we text just about every day, or we're not talking. Um, he's an only child. I am, even though I'm the oldest of five, I'm kind of an only child because I'm the only non-twin. So I'm 31. I have two twin brothers younger than me who are 29, and then there's twin boy and twin girl who are 24. But as the only non-twin, I guess I'm kind of an only child as well, because I until I got married, I didn't really have my my wingman. So Evan and I are trying to figure out it's basically two only children that are now living with like a roommate for the very first time. And uh, we didn't know each other until we moved in that really literally that first day freshman year. And so he's feeling me out. I'm feeling him out. And we start telling like, you know, when did you start playing stories? I think he played in his first golf tournament when he was four. Or something like that. It was like a, even if it was like a putting contest, like literally he, I don't even know if he knew how to, how to talk. And he like had a golf club in his hand. That just wasn't the case for me. I didn't play in my first golf tournament until, um, until Christmas of seventh grade. I remember I was playing in an event at a course in Vegas. I don't think it's still around. It was called Black Mountain. And uh, the tee times got pushed back because it was like 30 degrees and snowing. And um so yeah, I just I think I just had a late a late start, but because of the fact that I had easy access to the courses in Vegas and and you know supportive parents that were able to provide golf clubs and balls and resources for me to to ch- you know chase that dream I guess as a kid I maybe made up for in a shorter period of time what other kids did you know from age four onwards. <laughs> so I know that you played pro for a little bit. Did you always? you know, grow up, I want to play professionally on the PGA Tour, and that's how I want to support myself? Or was that kind of something that you realized that you wanted to do uh, during college? Probably the latter, probably during college. Again, I was, I was like hyper aware of, of my ability as a junior golfer. And I, I knew, I never played with these guys in college, but I saw like when I was a junior at Wake, that was when Ollie Schneiderjans and Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas and those guys were freshmen in college. I was just behind Ricky Fowler and Morgan Hoffman at Wake Forest or at, uh, at Oklahoma State. So, like, I saw kind of around me what guaranteed future professional success looked like. And I knew I wasn't that good, but I also knew, like, I, I played better in college than I did as a junior golfer. I probably played better as a college golfer than like even my parents or my college coaches thought I was going to play. Um, and so when it came time to to look at, do I want to try and do this for for a living? It wasn't so much, and maybe this is why I didn't make it as a professional. It wasn't like, hey, this is my destiny. I was put on this earth to do this. It was more like I at every stage I've played, I've I've dramatically progressed and improved and exceeded expectations. I know I wasn't an All-American. I know I didn't win in college, but I've got some good intangibles. I hit it far, I had a decent short game. Like maybe, maybe I get lucky. Like, you know, maybe I am one of the four or five guys that that isn't a touch from birth talent who actually scratches it out and and becomes like a Zach Johnson like player. And it, it did not end up that way. Zach Johnson is so much better than Charlie Harrison ever was or will be. So I'm not comparing myself to him at all. But I think probably early on, there are a lot of guys that looked at Zach and they're like, no way. 
and and he's he'll be a Hall of Famer one day. So I I wanted to try, um, but I always I always knew my limits, I guess, <laughs> in the back of my mind. I get that. Kind of jump into what you said about college, exceeded your coach's expectations probably. In college, you finished the last three years of school, you finished second or third on the team as far as scoring average went. And your first year played as an indie in the fall for two events and then wrapped up the year with six total events with scoring average of 76.8. And then you come back 2011 next year and have a scoring average of 74.4. For a lot of people, that's not a that doesn't seem like a big change, but always finding those strokes, especially on the courses you guys are playing. You're playing long courses, tough courses, and not in friendly conditions most of the time. Was there a jump that happened between that freshman and sophomore year? And if so, what what do you attribute that to? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So I should I should start by saying that, and this will again, this is like me saying, well, I wasn't necessarily good enough to play at Wake. It, admittedly, the four years that I was at Wake Forest, we were not the wake of of Webb Simpson and Bill Haas and the legends before, and we were not the wake of current. Right, like they are continuously a, a top three, if not you know five, if not three team in the country. I, I don't know why. Well, maybe I'm the common denominator in the four years that I was there. We were like a 30 or 40th ranked team. Um, but it, yeah, we we were not. I probably wouldn't have played a whole lot had I been at an Oklahoma State or at University of Georgia. So and it was, you know, look, our coaches recruited great players. I just think it was a weird four years, you know, in the team's ranking past the, that I was at Wake. But I think from an individual performance standpoint, again, look, I, I was never an All-American, never never won a tournament. I think my best finish in college was third. I finished, I had a chance to win maybe sophomore or junior year an event in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I didn't play very well in the back nine. I think Wesley Bryan ended up winning. My scoring average was was never, you know, under par or anything like that, but I worked hard at it. I really did. I think I, I think I knew deep down that I just wanted to be taken seriously. And, and, always felt like, hey, yeah, it's way golf, but I could be a leader on this team. And, you know, maybe what I lack golf ability wise, I can make up for with work ethic and team leadership. And so, I, you know, I we weren't really supposed to join fraternities and participate in Greek life. And I, I didn't. I'd, so I just kind of spent my time, you know, putting and chipping and and trying to get better. And, and you know, if I if I shot 77 or 78 in a tournament, I never wanted Coach Haas or Coach Dan, our our then assistant coach, to to be able to say, you know, that poor performance was due to the fact that you didn't, you you've not been putting in the time, you're not working hard enough. But to to your point, Daniel, we college golf is tricky. You people don't understand. Many people don't understand. You touched on it. You it's a it's a year round sport. You play in the fall when you get to school. You have you have like the winter break off, but then it picks right back up in the spring when you're playing when you when you get back from winter break and you're generally playing really nice clubs and courses and it is the, the college event held at club x is typically the highlight of club x's calendar season like like i remember we played this course in johnson city tennessee it's gone maybe through a couple different owners and but the last I remembered, it was called the Blackthorn Club at the Ridges. We would play this event like the week of of Halloween, like late October, 
and we're up in these northeast Tennessee mountains, and like yeah, the the door would slide open to the sprinter van, and like snowflakes would like come in the door, and and there's like you know a 20 mile an hour just a cold breeze, and guys are guys are trying to shake hot hot hand warmers to get you know putting on rain pants and like so we just we played very difficult golf courses in very difficult conditions because of the shoulder season of of college golf and so guys leave college and they go and they play like a florida mini tour in the winter where it's like 75 and sunny and the course is like 6500 yards and and they're like holy cow this is so much easier than college golf so so yeah that was that was a big eye opener. I, I don't think I was prepared for how hard college golf was going to be, but um, dadgum, it will toughen you up for sure. I heard you talking about how, you know, you may shoot 77 or 78 in a tournament. You go back and you work hard. Something that I'm sure all three of us are familiar with is, you know, you're grinding, planning these tournaments. If you shoot a bad round, it's not just a bad day on the golf course. It's a bad day for yourself. And sometimes, so those bad scores can affect maybe your your self worth. Um, and I'm sure even at a big school like Wake, it's taken even more seriously. How did you balance this, or did you even have an issue with this type of thinking? Yeah, totally. I think I think it was almost easier to play my now wife when when we were date when we started dating. I was a either a last year mini tour player, or a second to last year mini tour player, and I think that was the first time in my life that I was able to kind of say like, Hey, there's more to life than golf. And I, and again, when I, when I weirdly enough, when I stopped playing, I was probably playing the best golf of my life or my career. And I think a large part of that was the fact that my wife Kemper as, as my then girlfriend, uh, hope, hopeful wife was just provided some balance that wasn't there before, but it's hard to have that balance when you're, when you're a college golfer or a junior golfer, right? You're not going to get married. Yeah, you you maybe you got a, a a girlfriend, but like like you know, most folks do not marry their high school sweetheart. So I I think I definitely struggled with it, and I think I also had the added self-imposed pressure of of being like, okay, you know, you weren't some five-star recruit out of high school. Like you you got a every round. Of course, like Coach Haas didn't care. I mean, he wanted me to play well, but it wasn't like he's was going to kick me off the team if I shot seventy nine. And so I. I don't think I dealt with it very well, Cooper. I think I think I would kind of live and die by every round. And I, if I shot 66 that day, I was 66. And if I shot 79 that day, I was 79. I, uh, I, my goal, my goal each semester was to never have a round in the, or each year. My goal each year was to never have a bad day creep up into the 80s. And I, I don't think. I don't think I ever achieved that goal. I think I think even as a senior, I had like an 81 or something on an off day. But but yeah, I I, I wish is it's hard to teach a young person that there's more to it than golf when golf is technically like paying for their tuition and, and whatnot. So I probably it's a good question. I probably could have done a better job of knowing that golf wasn't the end all be all. But I don't know how you teach a 20, 21 year old again, whose college tuition is dependent on performance, like that that's, that that is the case. That makes sense. Jumping into something a little more tournament specific, I want to touch on two things. You talk about tough conditions and very specifically, I wanted to jump to tournament that I know you've played in and Cooper and I have been at, and that's the Jones Cup down yeah. in, uh, <laughs> at Ocean Forest. Yeah. Uh, one of your fun course, one of your 
<laughs> Hardcore. <laughs> Holy cow. I, we uh, played there. I was caddying for Cooper, I think two years ago. And Alex Fitzpatrick was there who played at Wake Forest. So uh, or was at Wake gosh. at that time. So let and, me just tell a little little story here about that. I play first round of the Jones Cup. Hardest course I've ever played. It's like 7,500 yards. You're driving it down a hallway, you know, narrow hallway, every hole. And I get in, I shoot 70, 79, 78, something like that. Obviously not happy, but at the same time, I'm like, I know how hard of a course this is. So I get in, I look at, I'm signing my card. I look up at the leaderboard and I'm like, okay, somebody must shot. 68 69 i can see it you know you can reach some of the holes i look up alex fitzpatrick 64 and i'm like that's the first time that i think i was exposed to just another level of golf and to this day i don't think if they had a major championship field i i still think that score would be leading that day if they put awesome. every every best he's, golfer in the world he's so freaking good and uh and you're right like like he's an example of that touch from birth talent, right? Like I'm not saying Alex doesn't work hard at all. That's not the case. I'm I'm sure he grinds. And, and Jerry and and Coach Aaron have told me that he grinds. But like Alex Fitzpatrick came out of the womb like his brother, a little different, right? Like he can do with golf clubs what he can do with golf clubs for the same reason that Adele can sing the way she can sing. Just a little different than Cooper, a little different than Charlie, a little different than Daniel. And and good on him for figuring out where he is most talented and and using that to his advantage but golly the a course like ocean forest will separate the boys from the men pretty quickly exactly and so you get out there you've played a lot of good golf courses and for the people who who haven't been there it's worth looking up but as cooper said it's a tight it's a tight course there's trouble on both sides of most holes green complexes are not easy when you comes to tournament rounds and especially a course like that how did you prepare for those tournament rounds what were you looking for strategy wise and when you're playing your practice round what were you doing to try to prepare yourself when you get out there great questions um i think you guys are gonna be like man we should never have this guy on again because all he does is talk about how bad he played when he was <laughs> um that's that's not at all my goal here i just think that throughout my career whether it be junior golf or college golf or or even as a professional i was kind of always doing things for the first time and kind of always is a last minute addition. Like I got into the Jones Cup. My I only played in it one time. I played it my I'm pretty sure it was my senior year of college. So this would have been like February 23, excuse me, February 2013. And and again, probably I'm a commercial real estate broker now, and I basically get paid to call people and email people a lot of times. And so hopefully I'll have commercial real estate success because of my ability doing that as a golfer like I bet I emailed Corey Wrights the then head pro at, at Ocean Forest 20 times you know hey if anybody drops out of the Jones Cup you know I'm going to be down in the area I'd love to play I'm at Wake but again like that tournament is for like studs and all Americans uh I was neither and but I got in and and so like you were saying earlier Cooper like how can you how can you try and tell a 20 year old that like there's more to to life than golf I I'm walking around Jones Cup seeing Jordan, uh, Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas. And I'm like, I shouldn't have been like wide eyed and awestruck, but I was like, it was, it was, I felt like I was at the masters. And so, you know, I'm playing practice rounds thinking, 
I knew it was gonna be hard. I just didn't know it was gonna be that hard. I I think I shot this may even be on the conservative side, but it was like 79, 79, 74, or something like that. I remember um I made made a quad on a par five. I want to say the third hole. I didn't even hit bad shots, but as you know, like it's the yeah. first whatever the first par five is on the front nine. Number three. Three, yeah. I was like five yards right of the fairway. Didn't even think to hit a provisional because I'm like, oh, that's fine. And I get up there and the ball is rolled into these palmettos. And I, I mean, it's nowhere close to being found. And to my point earlier, I guess the Jones Cup seems to really take pride in like potentially having a lead, a winning score, not under par. So they are out there setting up the course, trying to expose these college golfers that think they're hot stuff. So for a guy that barely snuck in the field, it was, uh, it was a big pill to swallow. To be clear, I uh, I kind of snuck in the field too. Yeah. I got through the qualifier in nice. a uh, in a playoff. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, well, at least you qualified. You truly deserve to be there. I was just writing <laughs> letters begging for a spot. <laughs> so, anyways, it was. Yeah, I think you know. Again, it was just I I never maybe played as well. It, it was weird. It was like on one hand, I always kept getting better. I always kept progressing. The moment was at times probably too big and I, you know, I'd try too hard or, you know, I'd, oh, there's Ricky Fowler. I need to, you know, I need to play this way so I can let my golf stat scorecard look like his and everyone will think I'm that good. And which is silly. But again, I, for a kid that was exposed to the game late that got lucky to go to wake, um, who was kind of trying to play catch up his whole time at wake, to have the ability to play in events like that, I just was always really fortunate. So that looking back on it now, obviously almost the golf was like secondary. It was just a, a treat and an honor to be there. So as far as tournament prep, it sounds like that was one of those things that going through practice rounds or like before the round. I mean, this was back in 2013. So decade isn't around. You don't have that to lean on. Was there anything in particular that as a team you guys did to prepare for tournaments, looking over a course, trying to figure out what club to hit on a certain hole, where to miss on certain greens, et cetera. Did you guys do that jointly, individually? And did you learn anything from that process? I think this can best be answered by talking about how much golf has evolved the last decade. Ironically, you bring up the decade system. I, I still don't 100% understand decade. I got a lot of respect for Scott uh, Fawcett, who, who's developed it, even though he, he, we've never spoken. I don't know him at all. Like, I know his stuff works. That was not around, at least I don't think it was around being broadcast at the college level when I was at Wake. Coach Haas and Coach Dan would walk with us in practice rounds. And, you know, we always had a good, a good yardage book. We were making notes in there. But J Coach Haas would always say, like he used to tell this really funny story, assuming this is true, um, with Webb, that uh, Wake was at uh, the U.S. Collegiate, which is, I don't think it's, the tournament may not even exist anymore. This was Georgia Tech's invitational event played every October at the Golf Club of Georgia here in Atlanta. And it really was like the masters of college golf. You got a caddy, they treated you like royalty, the greens were fast, and uh, we, the first hole is a skinny very tight par five but if you hit a good tee shot with driver you can get home in two with like a six iron or something like that and and i remember i was playing a practice round one time and i started to write down like six iron in my yardage book and coach house was like why are you writing that down and i was like well because that's what i hit today he's like yeah but what if tomorrow it's into a 20 mile an hour breeze and it's a it's not a, it's a five iron but you've got six iron written in your book what are you going to do and i was like well i don't know and he started to tell a story he said that like the only time he and Webb Simpson ever got into it on the golf course was Webb was like a freshman or sophomore at that event. 
and he did the same thing. He wrote he wrote six iron in his book or something. And Jerry told him, don't do that. Like, you know, it might not be a six iron tomorrow. Sure enough, he finds Webb the next day and he's got it's like it's like it's like the opposite. It's like it's really hot. It was blowing down like 30 miles an hour and it was like a nine iron, not a six iron. And Jerry's like, oh, Webb, you better hit the six iron. He's like, coach, like, stop, stop. It's not a six iron. I'm like, he's like, no, 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 you wrote six iron. Like, you got to hit your six iron because you wrote it in your book. And um, so, yeah, we 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 learned a lot just by watching our coaches and watching other guys on the team. We were very fortunate. Very seldom at Wake did we have a structured practice. Like, there was never like a, hey, from, from, from 2 to 2.30, it's putting time. And from 2.30 to 3, it's sand time. And like Jerry was like, look, you guys are big boys. Like if you're at Wake Forest and you kind of don't know what you need to do to get better, you probably shouldn't be here. And I'm happy to help you however I can, but you have to seek me out if you need help with your chipping or seek coach Dan out if you want to go to old town and, you know, hit 50 balls off the fourth tee box working on a cut. And and they would do that for us, whatever we needed, they would do. But we were treated like adults. We were expected to improve like adults. And um, I think that's why Wake Golf Again, maybe before Charlie Harrison and after Charlie Harrison has been a great program because the maturity that happens when golfers are there is pretty remarkable. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your time on the big break. We haven't touched on that yet, how the whole process went, how you reached out to them or did they reach out to you and then what it was like actually on set. It's funny. I'm 31 now. It's been, I guess, eight years since that our season was filmed and aired. My brother just got married back in May of this year, and I, I haven't seen, I mean, the big break hasn't been on TV in maybe five or six years, but he sends me a video like last weekend, and they're at some random bar in Washington, D.C., and my season of the big break is on the television at the bar, and, and you know, people are like, you know, who's that funny-looking guy wearing the pink shorts, and, he, and my brother's like, oh, man, that's that's my older brother, um, so it was a great experience. I I didn't know anything about it. I had watched bits and pieces of past seasons, but I was I was a first year mini tour pro. So I graduated from Wake in the spring of 13. I did not turn professional right away because I got invited to play again for the first time. A couple big amateur events that summer, like the Northeast Amateur at Juana Moisset and just like really, really cool stuff. And I wanted to do that because I'm probably like, holy cow, I might never get invited to do this again. So I didn't turn pro until August of 13. I went to Q school, made it second stage, but didn't get through. And so that winter, like December, yeah, this would have been like late November, early December 2013. I was at Disney playing in a, it was the old, um, again, the stuff has all changed so much over the years. It was like the old Hooters tour, which became the NGA tour. And they had like a winter series event at one of the Disney courses. So I was playing and I'm walking up the 18th fairway at the Magnolia course with my playing partner. And I see there's like a bunch of cameras behind the green. And the first prize that those two days was like, I don't know, $1,300, right? So like these cameras are definitely not here to watch guys playing for $1,300. And um, I asked my playing partner, I'm like, you know, what, what is that? And he's like, oh, those are, that's, that's, those are big break auditions. Those are the big break producers. And, you know, they video you if you want to audition. So I, I auditioned not, not because I was super jazzed about going on the show. I didn't have any uh, celebrity ambition or any of that. I just honestly needed the money. <laughs> I was 
you know, borrowing money to try and fund and underwrite a mini tour career. And again, I, you know, I played against probably 90 other like super highly skilled players that week at Disney for a chance to win, I don't know, $1,500 max. And uh, I'm like, okay, if I get on the big break and somehow get selected, it's me versus, I, and I didn't even know it was going to be a, a co-ed season. I just figured it would be all guys. I'm like, it's me versus, you know, 10 to 12 other guys playing for like a hundred to $150,000 just off of sheer odds. I was like, that's way better math. So I interviewed, did not at all expect to get picked. I'm like a nice guy, but like the most vanilla guy in the world as well. And like, I, you know, didn't wear my hat backwards. And, I, you know, like I was shocked when they called and said that, that I got picked, but maybe that's what they were looking for. <laughs> so I'm like really cookie cutter out of a vineyard vines magazine guy and um so yeah so we we didn't know where we were going they they email you like a week before you're supposed to fly out and they tell you kind of what to pack and then the the night before you fly they give you they email you your flight information and tickets and so you know i i was i had big aspirations of man they've done seasons in hawaii and and ireland and and so I was a little surprised when we got uh, Myrtle Beach as as ours, <laughs> but but it was um, the Barefoot Resort was actually awesome. They took a great care of us. Sweet golf courses, and it was a great experience. So you you film an episode a day for thirteen straight days. So the whole deal is is two full weeks, fourteen days. The first day you're there, you film the intros, which is just a it's really boring. It's a bunch of walking around. It's like anytime the big break like the music would play in the opening scene of the episode would come up and it was a bunch of golfers like all walking towards the camera that was all filmed it took weirdly enough it takes a full day to film that and then the next day is episode one the next day is episode two episode three and you just do an episode a day you've got skills challenges in the morning you break for lunch you do it again in the afternoon but it's but they're long days you're up at we would get up at 4 30 we would be eating breakfast anything if if there was ever a scene that showed like players eating breakfast, that was not at like nine o'clock. That was at 5 a.m. And usually like they'd like force you to eat. They'd be like, OK, Charlie, like you have to eat your scrambled eggs like it has to look. I'm like, guys, it's five o'clock. I'm not even close to hungry. And they're like, just do it for the camera. So, yeah, you learn a lot. And I think the biggest takeaway for me was that I I'd never. Obviously, I wanted to win. I thought I was good enough to win. I did not win. So I guess I wasn't good enough to win. Um, but the biggest takeaway for me was after I got home from the big break, I played my best golf again up until that point, like right after that, because nothing I played in afterwards, regardless of this, the circumstances or how big the tournament was, felt nearly as pressure packed as the big break. Like you just can't put into words how you're, you just would wake up on that show and your stomach at 5 a.m. would just start churning. And you felt like it was in a vice grip that was just churning and churning. And because it wasn't real golf, it was a skills challenge, right? Like if the three of us go play, you know, Cooper at your home course and the first hole's got, you know, rough down the left and the right, like if you hit your opening tee shot in the rough that's that's okay like you could still hit a nine iron on the green and make the putt for birdie but big break would only test your ability to hit that first fairway like it's just a skills challenge it's can you chip it to three feet can you make this like there's no 
there's no follow-up there's no next shot and i don't say that as a complaint you know what you're getting into when you're when you're signing up for the show but um it doesn't doesn't hit you until you're there like how difficult that is like the freaking flop wall you know there were still probably 12 competitors left when we did that and you you draw names out of a hat for batting order and like i was like eight or nine or something like that and and you can't you once the first person goes you you can't you don't get to chip or like practice at all you just have to sit there so that you don't have an unfair advantage over that person who had to go but you get to go practice for 45 minutes so you literally just have to sit and then they tell you it's your turn you've been sitting for an hour you go and put a golf ball on a lie that's as tight as a pool table and they're like all right now flop this over the wall straight in front of you and i'm looking at the camera guys like you all have to back up like there's a 90 percent chance i skull this into the wall and it's going to come ricocheting back at your hundred thousand dollar camera luckily i didn't you know but i just i think again the big takeaway for me was for the first time in my life i realized that nerves don't automatically mean failure and bad things and i think that's applicable in in all of life not just golf right like nerves and being nervous is just adrenaline it doesn't have a good or a bad you know connotation to it at all it just is what it is and i i think my whole life had just associated being nervous with not performing or you know but like somebody standing on the 18th tee at TPC Sawgrass getting ready to win the Players' Championships nervous, and they can kind of either think one thing, which is, oh, shoot, there's water all down the left. I'm nervous. I hope I don't hit it in there. Or they can think, you know what? I'm nervous. It's not good. It's not bad. It just means that I've got more more uh, adrenaline going. So I'm going to be able to hit this tee shot 330 instead of 310. Like, watch me do it. So I tried to channel it that way on the big break. Like, you know, I felt like my touch got a little bit better. The cup got a little bit bigger when I was putting. I think I hit a three wood, like, like probably 305, 310. Like, I'm, I can't hit a three wood 250 yards. But, like, just under the circumstances, because the nerves are flying, you can do stuff that you couldn't otherwise do if you were just playing with your buddies. So I didn't win. Great experience. But that was the big takeaway was that just because you're nervous, it doesn't mean something bad has to happen. And so I use that even today. I get nervous before big pitches or if I'm on a client call or something like that. And again, it doesn't mean that I'm going to say the wrong thing or fail or screw up. It just means that, you know, I get to focus a little bit harder and hopefully the outcome is what I want it to be. That is awesome. I was actually telling Daniel before we started recording, I was like, I, I don't think the big break, it just seemed, it just always seemed weird to me that they were doing you know, really just a chipping contest to decide the future of these guys' careers. I kind of wanted to hear your opinion on that, but you pretty much answered that question. We played a little bit of golf. Like I remember when I got booted off, that was actually playing golf. I was playing a guy named Jimmy Brandt. But again, these these episodes were only like probably 40 to 42 minutes if you if they allowed for commercials. Jimmy and I, it was supposed to be two holes. We both pushed the first hole with Birdie. And then the second hole it it looked like I well I did I three putted from like 20 feet and Jimmy made par and and I went home what the cameras didn't show was that we replayed that second hole like five times because we kept pushing we kept pushing we kept pushing but the can they only had the and we were out there we had to have been out on that second hole for like three and a half hours because every time they don't again they don't have like an NBC style camera crew that's got 
the Goodyear blimp flying overhead, giving you the, like, this is like kind of rinky dink, like homemade reality television where like you'd hit your tee shot and then the camera crews would go down the fairway and then they'd set everything up. And then 15 minutes later, you'd play your second shot and then they'd take you to the cameras to the green. And so like the holes took a long time to play. And daggum, we were out there for so long that I finally had that last birdie putt to try and beat Jimmy. And I'm like, I got to get off this golf course. Let's gas this one at the hole. And I'd, I paid the price. I ran it about eight feet by and didn't make the comebacker. But yeah, we, we were out there for a long time. But if you just watch the episode, you think, oh, what an idiot. You know, he three putted his second hole and <laughs> got sent home. And uh, it, that was hardly the case, though it was an idiot. Besides the big break, you obviously played in a lot of different tournaments. That happened in the Dece- in December of 2013, you said, approximately. And then you had Latin America Q School, which you got through had seven starts that season. I don't think you made a cut on any of those. 2015, I don't think you had any status, played one corn ferry. 2016, again, got Latin America status through Q School. Also played played seven events on Canada, four on Latin, and then 2017, seven events on Canada. One thing I've heard a lot about, I'd like for you to contrast for us and kind of give us a deeper dive into when it comes to these types of tournaments, it's not just playing a golf tournament that's going on. There's also you're your own logistics. You're your own manager. You're booking hotels for yourself, organizing flights, all that. And I've heard it's especially tough working through Latin America where it might not be everybody's native language that you're working in and you're going across country. What was it like uh, down there? What was it like on Canada? And what did you learn from all that? Problem solving. <laughs> being tough having thick skin rolling with the punches mini tour life is not glamorous at all right like no one's got a gun to your head no one's forcing you to to do that or choose that life but to get into it and think even if you're the money leader that it's that it's going to be glamorous is really foolish because because it's fun but it's not it's not glamorous at all and but but what an awesome experience i mean i got i never got to study abroad as a college golfer because it was a two-season sport you know i couldn't give up a spring semester to go travel in Italy with friends or something like that. So I'm more than made up for the international travel lack in college as a, as a professional golfer. I mean, I got to go to Brazil and Uruguay and, you know, Vancouver and all these cool places. But uh, it does. It teaches you a lot about just rolling with the punches and not letting, you know, the small stuff get to you. You'd be in Guatemala and your bag would get lost and you're trying to deal with you know, an Avianca gate agent who doesn't speak any English and you don't speak very good Spanish and, but you got to get your bag to Chile for the next event. And like it, it, there's no agent holding your hand, you know, planning your travel for you. You, like you said, Danny, you're doing that all on your own. So you, you're a lot of, you wear a lot of hats. You're a golfer, you're a travel agent, you're a chef, you're an event planner, you're a problem solver. It's, it's, it was a very, very fun four years, but it, when, it, when it was time for me to put the professional sticks down, and in a lot of ways, I was I was glad that that time had come because that was a very fun, but a, but a very difficult life at the same time. I got one more question for you, and including developmental tours, how many Q schools did you play in, or how many years of Q school did you play in, and then what advice would you give to someone that is going out this fall? to Corn Ferry Q School. So I just counted. I 
I think I would have done it was the web.com tour when I was playing. It's now the Corn Fairy Tour. I think I played in Corn Fairy Tour Q School four times, 13, 14, 15, 16. And then I played Lat I played European Tour Q School twice. So that's six. Latin Tour Q School at least three times. That's nine. And Canada Q School two or three times. So probably between 10 and 12 Q schools and, and a four-year stint as a professional. Some successful, some not so successful. I, I was proud of the fact that I always got through first stage Corn Ferry Tour Q School. But I, that's not correct. I didn't. One year I didn't. But most three of the four years I got to second stage. One, one year I pulled my back, the, the practice round, and like, I was like, withdraw or just try and play. And so I tried to play. But I had, I had decent success. Um, advice that I would give to somebody trying to make it boy that's a tough one because everybody's i don't i don't want to like give you a wishy-washy answer at all but maybe this will sound that way like i think i think the the guys who who aren't detached from birth talent right that they're not alex fitzpatrick they're the cooper or the charlie the guys like us that go on to have a zach johnson like career decide when they first give it a shot that like it is the only path in life for them that there is no plan b there is no backup option there is no getting a real job it is golf or bust until they put me in the ground and i think that when you start having when you when you put the time frame on it and say i'm gonna this is what i did i said i'm gonna give it four years and if i'm not where i want to be at the end of four years, I'm going to get my amateur status back because I'd rather be a 35 year old mid am playing in a fun event, you know, on that cocktail tour than a 35 year old still scratching it out on the Latin tour. That's just my that's not right. That's not wrong. It's just what I wanted. So. So, yeah, I think people would somebody trying as a 22 or 23 year old ought to say, like, OK, am I in this for the long haul or am I going to do this for a couple of years and just see if I can make it and understand that if it's the latter your odds of making it are probably drastically diminished than if it's like, all right, I'm going to do this for my life. That's a big gamble though, right? Like, cause you could end up and many people do the, the 41 year old that plays on the PGA tour for the very first time or something like that. So um, it's a different life than what I wanted. Again, not right, not wrong. Just, I just didn't feel like guys are just so much better than me. I remember playing in a corn fairy or a, a Latin event in 16 in Cordoba, Argentina. It was Angel Cabrera's home course. He actually played in the event that week, the week after the Masters. And I got paired with this guy from, he now lives in Dallas. At the time, he was living in like Fort Collins, Colorado. His name's Tom Whitney. He's got a crazy story. Went to the Air Force Academy. He was like a missile silo operator for like five or six years before he, after he got out of school, before he turned pro. And we get paired together the first two rounds. I'd never seen him before. He's this big, burly looking guy. And he rolls up to the first tee and he's got a, I can see all five knuckles on his left hand and then the underside of his knuckles on his right hand. He had the strongest grip I've ever seen. Nasty looking swing. And I'm thinking this guy's not going to break 80. He shot like 65. He could hit it high. He could hit it low. He could draw it. He could cut it. Unbelievable putter. Great chipper. And I'm like that. That guy's going to wear me out. Like, I can't even beat Tom Whitney. What am I? I'm not going to beat Rory McIlroy if I can't beat Tom Whitney. Got full status on Corn Ferry now. Yeah, he's an unbelievable player, and I, I hope he makes it on the PGA Tour one day. But I just, I the only reason, like I said at the start of this, the only reason I ever got into playing golf in the first place was because I wanted to spend more time with my dad. And 
my last my last year as a mini tour pro, uh, the writing was kind of on the wall. I was realizing that I was probably not good enough. And if I was with my dad, I didn't want to play golf because it was work, you know, and I'd ask him like, hey, do you want to go do your work on the weekend? And um, so that was when I, I realized, hey, it's you know, this is the game is not as fun as it used to be. I want to make it fun again. Let's get our amateur status back. So I'm cheering for the guys that are still out there playing. Uh, but I love my my reinstated amateur status, kind of like going from the uh, the outhouse to the penthouse overnight. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. I got two questions then we'll wrap up first was there ever a time you know you're traveling around were there ever was there ever a time uh when you realized you know i don't think this is you look at someone else's life and you think think you know i don't think this is for me yeah it was it was probably in argentina with tom i mean he he had kids back home he was like on facetime with them walking a t-box and and I was like, holy cow, like the dedication and the sacrifice that that requires. I, I was not married at the time. I I was not even close to having children. My wife and I are having our first kid in a couple of weeks. But I just was like, I don't I don't know that even a PGA Tour card and that fun PGA Tour life is worth is worth missing out on family time at home. I've, I I don't know Webb Simpson very well, but I have friends that know him decently well. And they've they've all said that is as much success as he's had, as much money as he's made, as many tournaments as he's won. I mean, he's he's got five kids at home and and it sounds like the older they get, the harder it is for him to leave. Right. So there there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes in professional golf that the cameras don't pick up when they just get you dropping that winning putt on Sunday and and cashing a big check. Right. There are a lot of a lot of, uh, you know, tough goodbyes and and, you know, birthday parties missed and and things like that. So. So, yeah, I think that that was probably it was at some point in 16 when when Tom and I got paired together, I was like, I, I don't know that I have the dedication and the commitment that he does to live life that way. I get that. It's it's a hard life to live. And the last question we have for all of our guests is now you're much older, much wiser. If you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself one thing to get better, what would it be? Man, that's a good question. I think. I think I'm going to answer it two ways if that's all right as junior golf my, my message to a junior golfer would be this is so cliche but like just have fun like if you're if you're having fun if you're trying to hit the ball hard if you don't have helicopter parents that are you know draining you and whatnot like you're going to play well and you will continue to improve just because you're having fun with the game and then if you if i were answering that to a college player i would say work on the parts of your game that that help you score the best right like when when i was in college brody Mark Brody had not written every stroke counts, right? Like we still believed in drive for show, putt for dough. And now we know that like arguably the two most important stats in golf are your ability to hit it far and in play off the tee. And then your proximity to the hole, like inside 150 yards. The guys that make the most birdies, like they hit it the closest to the pin. And, and generally they hit it to the closest to the pin because they've hit it the furthest and they're in play off the tee. Like I went four years at wake and even though we had access to TrackMan, it was so new everyone was really spooked by it it was the scary machine that that took a player that was not technical and made you technical like we had no idea until i was probably a senior that you could set an ipad on the ground and only have it show carry distance like i thought it had to show spin access and all these other crazy things that i don't even know what they mean and so I look back and I'm like, holy cow, I had four years of access, 365 days a year to a track man. 
And I only really leveraged it my last year once I figured out how to use it simply. So I, I think that if you're a college player and you can put yourself in positions where you know, you're able to do those wedge combines and just give yourself a ton of chances at birdie by working on your wedge play and scoring, then you'll have a really good chance of making it as a pro. Beautiful. We appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you on social media? Now you're in the commercial real estate brokerage business representing tenants. If you want to tell people about that and then where they can find you, because you know, it's always good to have a good lead. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. I, I don't, uh, I'm on Twitter. I have a, a private Instagram and I haven't posted in like two years. So that's not worth anything. But um, on Twitter, I'm at Harrison CMAC, Harrison CMAC. And it's a lot of stories about cold calling. It's very different than my old golf life, but a lot of tenacity and maybe the same skills that are rewarded as a college and mini tour player. But but yeah, it's it's an open profile. I, uh, I I try and be a good sport and engage with people, and so feel free to look me up there. And and hopefully the three of us will get to uh, get to tee it up, Cooper. I, I played with Daniel a couple of weeks ago. We the three of us need to get together here soon.